0: Acts chapter 9, verses 10 through 19, based on where we're at in our story here with Saul and the condition that he now finds himself in, if you remember from last week, uh, I was reminded this week of, uh, I was just kind of thinking about what it's it's like to be blind. And I was reminded of a game that uh, back in high school when I was, uh, or not in high school, in Grade school, and um, maybe even as early as first grade, second grade, uh, in the children's ministry at the Westland Church that I was at at the time. Uh, As you guys know, sometimes some crazy things can happen in youth and children's ministry, and you sometimes wonder how uh, teachers were able to get away with certain things. Uh, We had one particular teacher at this church that um, stretched the boundaries a time or two on what it is that. Uh, that people would tolerate if they were to walk in and find. And maybe no one ever knew about these things. I don't know. We were kind of tucked away in the basement of the church. I don't know if anyone would have ever uh, found us if we needed help. But uh, uh, she did this one uh, object lesson one time where she asked for a volunteer, someone who trusted her, and she took a bunch of mousetraps. And when I say mousetraps, I don't mean sticky traps. I mean mousetraps, the kind that snap, right, and that hurt really bad. And she took mousetraps and, and armed them and set them all over the floor in the middle of the, of the room. And she said, I need, a, I need a volunteer, someone who trusts me. And someone volunteered, and, and she said, all right, I want you to take off your shoes. And he took off his shoes, and she said, now I want you to put on this blindfold. And this guy, <laughs> trusting her, apparently, put on a blindfold, and then she proceeded To walk him through, navigate him through, while he's blindfolded, holding onto his hand, navigate him through this minefield of toe-destroying mousetraps in the basement of this church. I remember watching this going, this guy is nuts. Uh, She's nuts. He's nuts. Everything about this is nuts. But one thing is true of that situation, and every one of us, and especially if you're prone to anxiety already, Put yourself in the position of this young man, having been blindfolded, unable to see, and then being walked around a room where you know full well there are mousetraps waiting for you, ready to snap one of your toes if you should step in the wrong place. And he made it through safely. Uh, but I was reminded of this object lesson um, as I was thinking through and trying to, to understand what would it be like to be blind. I don't think it's a reality that many of us maybe think about all that often, maybe because we we don't want to. Uh, Certainly, the the idea of being blind, I find to be very intimidating, very scary. I sometimes uh, unintentionally play a similar game where when I'm in the basement and the light at the back of the basement is turned on but the rest are off, uh, rather than waste steps walking up the stairs, turning on that light, walking back down, turning off the back light, and then walking up in the light. I look, and I get a gauge for like where all the toys are in the basement, and then I think, okay, I think I've got it memorized, and I turn the lights off, and then proceed to trip over all the toys as I try and make my way to the steps to go out. But you realize, even in a, a simple illustration like that, to lose your, your sight is an extremely disorienting, extremely anxiety-inducing, extremely scary situation to find yourself in, even just in a situation of the power goes out in your home or or you're touring a cave and they kill the lights and it's just utterly pitch dark. It's scary. It's an intimidating place to be. And yet, that is the very position that Saul, the man who we know will eventually become the Apostle Paul, as the scriptures sort of transition into calling him Paul, but right now we know him as the author Luke as calls him by his name Saul, finds himself in this situation where he is completely blind. Last week we looked at, at the conversion moment, the conversion story of Saul where, where he is met on the road to Damascus by Jesus and, and the glory of God just utterly blinds him, knocks him to the ground and he has left after this interaction, after this encounter with the risen Lord, he is left blind. He is left helpless. All of the fears that you would imagine and the the terrifying aspects of being blind are exactly what hit Paul all at once and lasted for three days. Saul was now in this position of being utterly humble. That was really what we saw in the story last week, and it's what Robert talked about, was that Saul, this guy who was boldly and confidently and with great zeal and fervor headed to damascus to do exactly what his plan and and he had been he had been commissioned to do and that was to capture and kill and persecute christians and to snuff out the church all the confidence in the world this guy saw was was riding down this damascus road with until all at once he encounters christ and is left as we find him in our story today, utterly humbled. This is where we find Saul in our story today as we begin in, in verse 10. He is in this position of being helpless, blind, scared. All of these things is where we now find Saul as we begin here, Acts chapter 10, or chapter 9, verse 10. If you would read with me. In Acts, stand with me for the reading of God's word. Acts chapter 9, verse 10 through 19. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. Saul. so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. We see in our story today, in our text here in Acts chapter 9, a sort of resolution, a sort of uh, uh, next part of the story, if you will, some relief to the situation that we were left in last week where Saul, though having been converted on the road to Damascus, was now left blind and, and without food or drink. We come now into the next section of scripture where we receive a little bit of resolution, a little bit of relief for Saul here in this instance. We took an in-depth look at the the details of Saul's conversion last week and, and what it means and how all the parts of Saul's conversion are true of all believers. Though it might look different from case to case, we see in the life and the conversion of Saul an example of what conversion is for all of us. Today, now, we're going to look at and consider some of the facts of Saul's conversion and what the implications are for us. A, the title of my sermon today, as you can see is is Five Facts of Saul's Conversion. As we have seen last week of Saul's conversion, we want now to, to take this next portion of the story, because really this is a continuation of the same story. While Saul's conversion may have immediately took place last week, we see uh, the Lord bringing a sort of completion to this instance uh, here in the next few verses. And as we look at the, the various facts and, and implications of saul 's conversion, we begin with this. Point number one, we recognize that saul 's conversion was one that was divinely orchestrated. In verses 12 through 10 through twelve, we see Jesus Christ working in this situation working as he does all things out according to his will and for his glory. The sovereign planning and working of the Lord Jesus is on full display throughout the whole of this story. In verse 10, we see the Lord exercising this control by coming to this disciple, this man named Ananias here in Damascus. We're told very little about this man, Ananias. To be clear... This is not the same Ananias that we encountered earlier on. In fact, that's impossible, right? Because what we know that happened to that guy who who brought in an offering lied about how much uh, they had sold their property for and then was, was killed for his deception, for his lying in worship. This is a different guy now, a different Ananias who we are now introduced to. And to be honest with you, a much more refreshing and a likable character as far as Ananias' go. But we're told very little about this man. What are we told of him here? We are told that he is a disciple, that his name is Ananias, and that he lives in Damascus. That's all we're given here in our text. Now we know later on from what Paul would describe in Acts chapter 22 as he is recounting his conversion, he gives a little more detail about Ananias. You can tell from this instance the respect and the admiration that Paul had for this one who the Lord sent in order to lay his hands on Saul. Saul later Paul in chapter 22 says this of Ananias that he was a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there. I love the description of Ananias in this passage. Ananias reminds me of the kind of guy who like who I want to be. A guy who is faithful to the Lord, who's honest and hardworking, who has a good reputation among outsiders and among the people in the community? Because while we recognize that, that being a Christian today increasingly comes with less and less social capital, doesn't it? Less and less. Still some. I think we still live in a context here in sort of the South where there might be some social capital that's gained, uh, some Some admiration that people might have when you say that you are a Christian. But indeed it is decreasing, right? All the more with people in this day to claim the name of Christ meant to a certain degree to bring on disdain, to bring on ridicule, even as we see to bring on persecution. And yet even with that, Ananias, who was a follower of the way, he was a follower of Christ, was thought well of. He was spoken well of by all the Jews who lived there. Whatever you say about Ananias, we can conclude from these short things that we know about him that he was a faithful and quiet man of God. And the command that Jesus gives to Ananias to go and find Saul, he also gives him a certain amount of insight into what he is doing on Saul's end. In this, we see the comprehensive nature of Christ's work in the world. It's really pretty cool that the Lord gives Ananias this special glimpse. He didn't owe it to him. The Lord didn't owe it to Ananias to include in his command what he was doing on Saul's end, but he does, doesn't he? As he tells him, he says, go and call to the street called Straight, the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. He has seen a vision of a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Really, this is an immense grace, I think, of the Lord to Ananias, but by no means was Ananias owed this information. The Lord had every right to just command Ananias with nothing else and say, go and find this guy Saul and lay your hands on him. In his grace, though, the Lord demonstrates for him the comprehensive nature of his work That he is not just working with limited tools. He's not working with one hand behind his back, but rather every aspect of this situation, just like in our lives today, the Lord is working and is moving for his people and for his church. This certainly would have given Ananias reason to trust the Lord as he is at work in Saul's life as well as in the life of Ananias. And this would have been a a great help for Ananias. Because Ananias was, as we see later on, not ignorant to who this guy was. Not ignorant to the, uh, to the extent to which he had persecuted the church. And so the Lord in his grace gave him this extra bit of information. Saying, hey, look, here's how I'm working not only for you, but also in the life of Saul. This is always the case though. The case that God is always working on every. End of his mission. Not just in our situations, not just by giving us commands and giving us instructions, but also going before us and doing what needs to be done in order for lives to be changed, in order for the mission of God to be accomplished. But sometimes it's hard for us to recognize that, isn't it? Because unlike Ananias, we are given commands, we are given in the scriptures expectations of what we are to do, how we are to live. Oftentimes we are not given a a special glimpse at what the Lord is doing on the other end, are we? It would be really nice sometimes when we we seek to obey the commands of Christ, to go out and to proclaim the gospel, right? Because this is a command on our lives, isn't it? In the same way the Lord commanded Ananias, go to this man, Saul, Christians have a command on our lives to go and make disciples of all nations to be prepared in season and out season to give a defense for the hope that we have within us as christians we are given commands and we are given callings and sometimes we find it very difficult to follow if only the lord would show us like he did ananias show us what it is he's doing on the other end show us some sort of evidence that we are not walking in blind or that he is not only using us and ignoring the other people And we wish we had that. I think at times I do. I wish I could see what the Lord is doing in the lives of other people before I actually took the step of obedience to, to whether proclaim the gospel to someone or to call someone to repentance or whatever the case might be. Because what the Lord calls us to do as believers, as the church, even as brothers and sisters in Christ can oftentimes be very, very difficult to trust him in doing those things. And while the Lord might not give us a a special miraculous window into what he is uniquely doing in the lives of other people, while we might not be granted visions the way Ananias and Saul were in this story, what are we given? We're given promises in the scriptures over and over and over again of God's faithfulness to his people, of what the end will be for those who seek to love and obey Christ, In a sense, we are given a glimpse into the future. Read the book of Revelation and try to come to some conclusion other than God is going to see his people through. He is going to win the victory. He's going to win it on behalf of Christ and his people. We are given guarantees. We are given promises in scripture if we would only learn them, cling to them, and trust them. Then we would have all the confidence we need, like Ananias, to live lives obedient to the Lord. Understand that Saul's conversion was divinely orchestrated by God. Secondly, Saul's conversion, this is our next fact of of his conversion, it was surprising. We don't need to cover too much on this, right? Because, Because Robert did a great job of discussing it last week. But let's just read for a second Ananias' reaction in verse 13 and 14. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. The Lord gives this command to Ananias. He says, go and find this man. His name is Saul of Tarsus. And Ananias' ears kind of go up. Well, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, Lord, who did you say? Saul of, of Tarsus. That's what I thought you said, yeah. Um, you know what he's doing, Lord? Do you know the kind of things that he's been up to? You know what his opinion is of people like me? It's not good, Lord. Ananias, for a moment here, kind of falls into, into Moses mode, doesn't he? Sort of questioning the Lord's command, like, ooh, Lord, I... let's just rethink this for one second. Saul of Tarsus is who we're talking about here. We can understand Ananias' reaction, can't we, to this commission that the Lord has just given him to go and find this guy Saul of Tarsus? We can understand it because we can understand that he was fully aware, according to the text of what it is that Saul was doing and what it is that Saul was on the road to Damascus to come and do. Literally, Saul was on his way to find Ananias and the like and to wipe them out. And Ananias knew that. He knew full well that Saul, if he had had a chance to follow through and get to Damascus with no intervention of the Lord, would have happily come into Ananias' house and wrecked him. So we can understand where he's coming from, can't we? Lord, are you sure about this? This guy, for as far as I know, would love my head. His pushback here kind of reminds me of the pushback of of Jonah, the reaction of Jonah. In the Old Testament, when the Lord commanded Jonah to go to Nineveh, to, to tell them of their wickedness, that was the message, right? The message the Lord sent with Jonah and and commanded him to go and declare to Nineveh was you are wicked and I'm going to destroy you in three days. Jonah hated the Ninevites, right? Many people did. They were a hated people and hated especially by Jonah. And so what did Jonah do? You would think he might be happy to go and declare to Nineveh, right? You're going to be destroyed in three days because of your wickedness, you're going to be destroyed. But he didn't do that, did he? What did Jonah do instead? You know the story. It's one of the most popular stories to be told in, in children's church and things. He, he instead runs away. He tries to, to flee from the plan of the Lord. And, and he gets on this boat. And after this big storm hits and he is cast overboard, is swallowed up by this, this whale or this big fish. Until ultimately the Lord kind of shakes him into what he's supposed to do. And he does. He goes to Nineveh and he declares the message all throughout Nineveh. In three days, because of your wickedness, the Lord is going to destroy you. And if you know how the story goes, you know the Ninevites repented. They fasted and put on sackcloth and ashes. They were in remorse and repented and cried out to God for forgiveness of their sin. And what did God do? Darn it all, if Jonah wasn't right, when the Lord confronts Jonah about his attitude and about what has happened, Jonah says, I knew what you would do, God. I knew that you were merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. I knew you would forgive them. That's why I didn't want to go tell them. That was Jonah's attitude. And the book of Jonah ends with that as his attitude. I'm so thankful for this man, Ananias. His course correction from that of Jonah. In contrast to Jonah... This Damascus disciple submitted and obeyed, even though it was probably just as hard, if not harder, than it was for Jonah. The Ninevites weren't coming after Jonah to hunt him down and kill him, persecute him, cast him into prison. Saul was literally on his way to do that to Ananias. And now Ananias is told, go and find this one he is praying Thankfully, we see from Ananias a much better response to the command of the Lord, especially once the Lord again makes clear his intentions to Ananias. He makes them clear in verse 15 where he says, but the Lord said to him, this is the Lord's response after Ananias. He got in his little little rebuttal. He got in his, his complaint, right? And the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And at this, what does Ananias do? Despite the shock, despite the surprise and recognizing who it is that this guy is and was, when the Lord declared to Ananias, he is chosen, he is my instrument and he is going to carry my name to the Gentiles, to kings, and to the Jews. For the sake of Jesus' name, Ananias said, all right, Lord, if it's about your name and for your name's sake, and if he is your chosen instrument, who am I to deny it? Though it was still surprising. This was Saul of Tarsus we're talking about here. Yet Ananias obeyed. In verse 16, we see this next line, which I found to be interesting. He says, this is after the Lord has said he is my chosen instrument. He's going to carry my name. Then in verse 16, this is what the Lord says to Ananias. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. It it might be tempting for us to think, to hear Jesus telling Ananias, after Ananias has just said, do you know who this guy is? Do you know what he's done and what he's willing to do? And now the Lord says, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. It would be tempting for us to think that the Lord somehow like was giving Ananias like a don't worry, he'll get his, right? I'll get him back. I will, I will pour out on him all the wrath that he is due for what he has done to my people in suffering. Don't you worry about it. The fact of the matter is, that's a bad understanding of what. Jesus is saying here. The the suffering that the Lord is going to show to Saul is not intended to be retributive. It is not intended to be in in response or because of Saul's sin and his wickedness. For indeed, at conversion, what happens because of our sin and wickedness? The wrath, the punishment that we are due for our sin, for our wickedness, in Saul's case, for the persecution of the church, for the killing of of Christians, even the the approval of Stephen's stoning, what does he deserve for all of that? He deserves God's wrath, doesn't he? And yet, in conversion, what happens to the wrath of God that we deserve? It's removed, isn't it? All of the wrath of God, every single bit, the entire cup of God's wrath, is removed from us who trust in Jesus Christ for salvation, and it is poured out on him on the cross. And that is just as true of the church persecuting, Stephen stoning, Jesus hating Saul as it is for any of us in here today. This is not retributive justice for Saul's sin that Jesus is now saying, I'm going to make him suffer. Rather, God was showing Ananias that he and this guy Saul, who has now been converted, are kindred. That the same way you are suffering, Ananias, the same way all who choose to take on the name of Christ will suffer, I'm going to show Saul exactly that, that he will suffer. Indeed, point number three is that Saul's conversion brought suffering. What God was telling Ananias is that he was going to show Saul was the weight and the cost that would come with being a chosen instrument of Christ. One thing that this does show us is that it would seem that Saul had at least some awareness then, as he is moving forward into his ministry, he had some some kind of awareness of the things he was going to suffer, the things he was going to face before he met them, before they came upon him, before, before they befell him. And yet he followed Christ nonetheless. This is kind of amazing and I think beautiful to think about that That Jesus has just said he's going to reveal to Saul what he's going to have to suffer. He might not have revealed all the details at whose hand, all of that. But Saul, then we recognize, went headlong into his ministry knowing full well that he was going to suffer. Why would he do this? Why would Paul see all that he's going to suffer and yet still commit his life to the service of Christ? He would do this, why? Because he counted the cost and he realized that it is worth it. Because to follow Christ, whatever that might mean, whatever suffering that might bring, whatever hatred, whatever disdain that might bring, whatever relationships might be lost because of it, following Christ is better. And so though he has shown his suffering ahead of time, Saul still charged forward in service to Christ many who are going many who are going through the motions of christianity right now or or claiming christ right now have never actually sat down and counted the cost of what it means to follow christ of what it actually means to be a disciple of christ you see many people think that being a christian is as easy as i go to church on sundays I'll maybe put something on my Facebook every now and then. But by and large, my life doesn't change all that much. It stays pretty much the same. It just changes my Sunday morning routine some. Maybe a little bit throughout my week. And maybe, if I'm really gung-ho, it'll affect my bank account a little bit, right? But is that really the extent of the cost of following Christ? That's not what the scriptures would have us believe. Christ himself said you have to count the cost Think, for example, just of something like self-denial. Self-denial is an absolute essential for being a follower of Christ. You cannot be a follower of Christ without accepting and understanding the commands that we have to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and to follow Him. And yet, for many of us, self-denial sounds all good and fine until the slightest bit of self-denial is actually required. So long as it doesn't affect my sleep schedule... Or my leisure time. Or my bank account. Then I'm fine with Christianity. But when it starts interfering with what I consider to be my life. Oh Lord. I, or to giving you Sunday mornings. I mean. Now you want me to start including you. And obligations and obedience and other parts of my life. It begins to get really hard. But that's what Christ has called us To. To self denial, denying yourself, putting others ahead of you, and living your life in mission and in service to Christ. Not only are we called to self denial, but we're called also to enmity with the world, and even at times with our own families. Think about what Christ says in Matthew chapter 10. These are strong words that Jesus, our Messiah said himself in Matthew chapter 10, verse 34 and following, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. That's interesting, isn't it? Don't we like to, around Christmas time, especially focus on peace on earth, right? And yet Christ himself here says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. These are difficult and hard words. They're difficult and hard words. I can say as a parent and as a husband, I know the very real danger in my heart of idolizing my family, of idolizing my wife and, and loving her and being more committed to her than I am to Christ or loving my children to the, to the point that I have made them idols and my love for them dwarfs my love of Christ. I know the risks are there. Indeed, it is a great distortion of what is a good thing. The love and the bond that is shared between a husband and wife or a father and son or a mother and a daughter is a good and a beautiful and right bond and it is intended to be strong. But it is not intended to be that which dwarfs all else in our lives and in our commitments. Indeed, what we see here is that our love for God ought to make our love for our family, for our wives, for our children look like hatred. We need to do like Saul did. And though we recognize that conversion brings suffering, it brings heartache with it. It is worth it. Like Saul, we need to be aware of the cost of following Christ. Not come into this Christianity thing thinking that it is just a piece of cake. It's just another thing to add to my resume. Another thing to pin on my Facebook wall or whatever you do. It's not just something to be added on to, but it is all-consuming. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. We need to be fully aware of the cost of following Christ. But let me assure you, Christian, as it is always my joy to do, it is worth it. Whatever you might gain by forsaking Christ and embracing the world and what it has to offer, even the good things that the world has to offer, is not worth what you're going to lose. It's not worth it. It's not worth your soul. Saul's conversion indeed brought suffering, and yet as Saul counts the cost. He knows it. It is worth it. And it would be easy for us at this moment to, as we you might be feeling right now, the weight of what it means to be a Christian. And it is a weight and it is a burden and it is difficult. But Christian, God has not called us to do this alone. In our story, my favorite part comes in verse 17. What we see in verse 17 is what point number four The fourth fact of Saul's conversion is that he was brought into a family. The language that Ananias uses here in verse 17, as he addresses Saul, let me remind you again, Saul, the guy who was on his way to kill people like Ananias. How does he address him in verse 17? So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, what an amazing thing that must have been for, for Saul. This man who was blind, who is, who is in just a complete state of shock of what he has just encountered. Now this man, Ananias, a disciple of Jesus, comes in and laying his hands on him, addresses him not as friend, not as Pharisee, not as fellow Jew. He addresses him in a familial way. He calls him brother i love this so much because this pictures for us what it means to be converted and to be to become a part of the family of god that it is exactly that saul was not converted into this isolated position of apostle and it's just saul doing his own thing isolated if that had been the case that would be a really really sad place that that saul would still find himself in but that's not the case for saul Three days after his conversion, while still blind, he is introduced now to this guy, his brother, Ananias. And here he gets the first taste of what it means to be a part of the family of God, something that he, as you see throughout his writings, can't get enough of. It's a a desire that that we long and that can't be ever oversatisfied. that we long for and we need, and God has given us, a family in Christ. We oftentimes, I think, I think we miss out because we don't utilize familial language in the church. One thing that, that I enjoy doing, and some people are weirded out by it, but I like when I meet a brother in Christ, certainly when I'm interacting with my, my, my fellow Christians, church members, people who, who love the Lord like I do, I enjoy to call them brother. It's not a name I give to anyone. If you ever get a text from me or a call from me and I call you brother, just know that's not the same way I addressed my phone call with fellow agent or with the guy at the bank or with whoever it might be. When I sit down in the dentist chair, I don't go, what's up, brother? It's a title that I reserve and I think ought to mean something when we refer to people in the church to fellow believers in Christ Jesus because it is representative of the fact that we are a family. It is unfortunate that uh, the terms sister and, and sometimes even brother have kind of been co-opted by other, other people. I don't think that, uh, that uh, sister carries the same weight, unfortunately, because it uh, sounds like I'm calling you a, a nun or, or someone living in a, uh, in a commune, but I think that's sad and I think it's worth pushing against. Because sisters in here today, we are a family. And though it might be, might be something that we forget sometimes, we might fail to use the language, the bond and the relationship is there because of the Holy Spirit. We need to recover this kind of familiar brother and sister family language that is lacking today. It's biblical language, by the way. Paul regularly addresses people as his brothers, as his sisters, even as his children in the faith. Paul's understanding of the church is that it is a family. Do we have the same understanding? I think it might help if we seek to gain back some of this language. At least in our minds, think in this way that these people you see around you who love the Lord like you do, they are not just people passing by. They are not just faces that you see on Sunday morning and other times. They are your brothers and your sisters. Act accordingly. Love them accordingly. Live accordingly. Because it's a beautiful thing. That though conversion, though our salvation, though being a Christian means suffering, it means hardship. It does not mean isolation. It does not mean that we are left to do this alone. It does not mean that we are left without hope. Our hope ultimately is found in Christ Jesus. But in his grace, in his mercy, he has created for us a family to do life with, to be in relationship with, and to serve him together. Fact number five of Saul's conversion is that Saul's conversion brought true sight. We see in verses 18 and 19 that, as we see, Saul's physical sight is given back to him. Verse 18 says, Immediately something like scales fell off his eyes. And he regained his sight. This instance where these scales fall off is the time when, when Saul's physical sight is regained. But though physical sight is restored here in verse 18, spiritual sight was granted and given to Paul back in the previous, cha- in the previous verses. In verses 1-9. through 9. Because the, the blindness that we see in Saul here, is a picture, it is representative of the sort of spiritual blindness that all unbelievers find themselves in. And the spiritual blindness that Saul himself was in. Here in this physical blindness, the Lord gave him a picture, a very tangible and difficult taste of the spiritual condition that he was in. But we see here, with regards to Saul's conversion, as it is pictured here physically, in this story, when Saul came to faith in Christ and, and encountered the risen Lord, spiritual sight was also granted. This is something that Saul would write about later on in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, where he says, In their case, that is, unbelievers, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let the light shine out of the darkness, has shone into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Saul was able to write so clearly, so passionately, so truly about the spiritual blindness and sight, the light that comes at conversion, because he experienced it very seriously in a very real way. Imagine what it must have been like for Saul to be in his position, recalling the scriptures that he had memorized. He knew the law. He knew the Old Testament well. He says of himself that he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. This guy knew the law and now Saul is left while he spiritually well or excuse me while he is physically blind and for 3 days did not eat or drink he is left sitting thinking through all of the passages of the old testament that he heard and that he memorized and that he had gotten wrong he was left to remember and recall all the evil that he had done against the very messiah that he claimed to believe in against the name of Yahweh. It's no wonder that Saul didn't eat or drink. It was absolutely not because he was preparing for baptism. Saul's failure and, and lacking of eating and drinking because he was in a state of emotional distress, as any of us would have been to come to this realization of what you had just been doing. You had spent your life, dedicated your life to this cause of eradicating the name of Christ and then to be hit with the reality that you were dead wrong. Though he knew the scriptures, he was unable to see them and understand them correctly until now when he was given his sight. But now, the blinders have been removed and Saul can clearly see his Savior and his Messiah and again What a relief it must have been to have one of those people whom he was persecuting come in and embrace him as a brother. All of these facts about Saul's conversion, every single one of them, the fact that it is divinely orchestrated, the fact that it is surprising, the fact that it brings suffering, the fact that it brought him into a family and the fact that it brought true sight, every single one of those things is not only true of Saul's conversion, they are not only facts about Saul's conversion, but they are facts about our conversion. For indeed, not a one of us was converted by accident. But each and every one of us was divinely chosen by God, and he instrumented, he orchestrated it in such a way that he would reach out and save a sinner like us. Each and every one of us, though we might not like to think about it, it is quite surprising that we are saved. Because each and every one of us deserves God's wrath. Each and every one of us has been transferred from an enemy of God to a child of God. Each and every one of us at conversion need to recognize that the scripture tells us that with conversion comes suffering. The name of Christ is not one born lightly or haphazardly. So let us consider and count the cost. Each and every one of us when we are converted are brought into the family of God. Let us live in that. Let us embrace that. Let us not forsake that. And yes, that means gathering together on Sunday mornings. But it means far more than that. It means that we gather together on Sunday mornings, that we look after one another, that we care for one another, that we live as a family. And there is a great joy and benefit and indeed a need that we have of such a relationship. Just like Saul's conversion also, our conversion brings true sight. All of these things are true of, Paul, of Saul in conversion and also of us. Let us recognize that. Let us rejoice in what God has done for us in conversion. And, and for those of you in here today who maybe this is not true of you, that you've never experienced conversion, that you have never trusted in Christ for your salvation, come to a realization of your guilt, of your sin, and turn to him. I would encourage you, Let today be the day of salvation. You don't need to see a big flash. You don't need to be blinded and not eat for three days. You don't need to be on the road to Damascus. If you have come to a realization of your sin and your need of a savior, then today is the day. The Lord has already been working in your life and orchestrating it so that you would believe. I also, I I can't leave this text without just saying something of the significance of this little guy named Ananias. Ananias, by and large, is a nobody in the New Testament. He barely comes up again throughout the pages of Scripture. And yet Ananias is pictured here as a beautiful and great picture of faithfulness and trust in the Lord and brotherly affection for one who didn't even deserve it. Ananias is a beautiful picture for me because we read the story of Saul's conversion and, and, and all that Saul is going to do and, and as the Apostle Paul, all the, the impact he is going to have. This guy who, who's just been converted, as we know, is going to be the world's greatest theologian, the world's greatest evangelist, the world's greatest church planner, all of these things. The greatest the church has ever seen is wrapped up here in this guy, Saul. And yet, none of that would have happened had it not been for the faithfulness of this guy, Ananias. As Christians, a lot of us want to to be used in a way like the Apostle Paul, don't we? We want to be the one that the Lord uses to to save hundreds. We want to be the one that the Lord uses to plant churches. We want to be the one that the Lord uses to write books and and blogs and some of these things. If nothing else, we at least sometimes want to be the one known for his zeal, like Paul, but let us not skip over Ananias so fast. The quiet faithfulness of this man, who though he had every reason not to trust Saul, he had every reason not to go forward with, God, with what God called him to do, because of his trust in Jesus Christ, his Savior, said, Lord, if this man is your chosen instrument, then he is my brother, and I'm going to go love him as such. Ananias provides for us a beautiful picture of what it looks like to live the Christian life, even in just these few verses. Let us learn from his example. Let us love one another in this way, in spite of of what the background might be for our brothers and sisters in Christ, despite maybe what their politics are, despite maybe what kind of interests they have, despite maybe the fact that they're kind of a jerk to us before they came to Christ. Let us love them well the way Ananias did because they are chosen by God. Let's pray.